Hello, folks. This is Princess. You are listening to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends. Welcome back to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. As you travel for the holidays, give this episode a spin. Don't forget when you get together with friends and family to talk about the podcast. Word of mouth is the best way that this thing grows. Dr. Laura Sanger, a friend, a mentor, she's back again to cover a topic that I wanted to talk about for a long time now. We cover marriage, what the Bible says about it, why it's under attack, and then it just morphs into her sharing experience, stories, advice. See, marriage is a relationship that is meant to last our entire lives here on this earth. Unfortunately, that's not the way things seem to go these days. While hopefully diving into this episode will give us some answers and some insight into how to contend for our marriages the right way. Whether you've been married for 30 years or you're getting ready to get married or anywhere in between, this episode is for you. Yes, for you and for me and for everybody else. That's why I need your help to share this. I need you to also help me by leaving that five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast catcher, Apple, Spotify. That really helps the show grow. Let's get into this episode. What am I waiting for? Are you guys ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you for being here. Dr. Laura Sanger, she's almost a regular. She's with us again here for a segment that is so important. You guys, marriage, we need to be more transparent and we need to understand what the Bible says about marriage. And this has been on my heart recently. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Mm. marriages have been suffering this is nothing that is under the radar by any means we know since 2020 um, the persecutions that have started in unique ways the spiritual battle the enemy does not like to see us joined together in a godly union so dr laura sanger it is an honor i can't wait to hear what you have to say (laughs) about all of this i'm so excited yeah, and I'm I'm actually really excited to talk about marriage because um, you know so often I'm talking about the Nephilim agenda and you know <laughs> what's going on and it actually weaves into this. But you know when we were texting back and forth as we often do, um, you happened to to text me when I was celebrating my 30th wedding anniversary and and you're like, hey, will you do a segment on marriage? I thought yes, I would love to talk <laughs> about marriage. I thought is important to kind of really expose is this assault that's happening on marriage and then kind of talk about what the biblical covenant of marriage looks like. And then I'll share um, probably some stories, just personal stories of ways that um, Tom and I, my husband, you know, we've endured 30 years um, through life's different struggles that we've faced. So, you know, when I was thinking about, um, even, you know, recent assaults on marriage and 
and I'm one of those people that I, the Lord just helps me see a, the big picture. And, you know, with the book that I wrote on the roots of the Federal Reserve, I go all the way back to the dawn of humanity. So it's not surprising that's what I did when I started thinking about marriage too. And really the, the first assault on marriage is from Genesis 6. Um, and it's, it's notified in, in verse 1 and 2, which says, Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. So the purpose of this particular assault, this first assault on marriage, was literally to create an alternate bloodline. It was to propagate the seed of Satan through the Nephilim. And I think ever since the kingdom of darkness has been trying to defile marriages. Um, And so what I want to do is dig a little bit into this particular passage. And again, kind of what I love to do is look at the etymology of words, because when we look at the words in their original language, it just really unlocks a depth of understanding that we don't normally get just by reading it in the English. And so In this passage, you know, the Hebrew word for saw, as in the sons of God saw the beautiful woman, is the Hebrew word ra'ah, and it means to look intently at, to observe, to gaze at, and to watch. Now, it's interesting because one of the other terms for the sons of God in the book of Enoch is the watchers. Mm -hmm. And so is this where they get this because, you know, here they were watching the beautiful women and they were lusting after them. And of course, we don't know how long they were watching them, but it was long enough to develop this pent up lust for which these sons of God were willing to commit treason in order to fulfill their sexual desires. Well, then even more telling is if we look at that Hebrew word for took, as in they took any they wanted as their wives. That's the Hebrew word lakach. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but, and it means to seize, to capture, to carry off and to take in marriage. And so when we understand this, what, what happened is these watchers, they captured these beautiful women and they carried them off to violate them sexually. And they forced them into marriage and then impregnated them with the Nephilim. Now, it's possible that some of the women, you know, they may have felt honored by being chosen as wives for the gods. But when you look at the meaning of these Hebrew words that's used to describe this event, it really suggests otherwise. In fact, you know, some scholars, they even suggest that men were willing to trade the women for the sacred knowledge that was promised to them by the watchers. So it really raises the question, was this possibly the first women to be trafficked in human history? It's so important. Wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. So when we consider the the big picture, so that was the initial assault on marriage um, back at the, you know, during the days of Noah. And then we fast forward all the way into our day. The most recent assault or I should say one of the more recent assaults, because it seems like daily there's assaults on marriage. Absolutely. um, Is the Respect for Marriage Act. And this was introduced on July 18th of this year by Representative Gerald Nadler. And the next day it was passed by the House, which was remarkable. And, you know, as often as the case, when they give names to these bills, it the bill actually accomplishes the exact opposite 
of what the name is. And so it really should be called the Defilement of Marriage Act. And this bill, my understanding of it and what I've read is that it was introduced by Jerry Nadler because of a response that was given by Justice Clarence, Clarence Thomas. And he opined that, you know, there was similar faulty legal reasoning as what overturned Roe v. Wade in the Defense of Marriage Act. And so that would need to be revisited. And that's the act in 2015 that legalized same-sex marriages. And so because Clarence Thomas opined that, um, Representative Gerald Nadler um, brought forth this act. So after it got passed, you know, um, a lot got stirred up, as you can imagine. And a lot of constituents, thankfully, started um, writing their senators, you know, because it's going to go to the Senate next. And I um, received a, a letter from one of the constituents of Senator Mike Lee, who's our senator here in Utah. I don't consider <laughs> Mitt Romney our senator, even though he technically <laughs> he is. But um, so on September 7th, um, this is what Senator Mike Lee wrote about the Respective Marriage Act. He says, unfortunately, this legislation masquerades under a banner of respect while marginalizing and punishing Americans whose views about marriage differ from those recognized by the government. This bill would require American individuals, companies, and institutions to recognize any definition of marriage that is approved in any state, including marriages between more than two people or even child marriages. Under this legislation, should any individual or entity have religious or moral concerns with state definitions of marriages, they could be subject to government discrimination and potential legal action. So he wrote that on September 7th. Then a week later, on September 13th, 2,000 pastors, ministers of faith, and then leaders of religious nonprofit organizations, they sent a letter to every single U.S. senator. And in it, they say the proposed bill represents a startling expansion of what marriage means and who may be sued for disagreement. This threatens the freedoms of Americans of many faiths, creeds, and walks of life who wish to conduct their lives and religious practices consistent with deeply held beliefs. So let me kind of explain what this act, if it gets passed by the Senate and becomes law, what this could do. So under this Respect for Marriage Act, a state such as Utah, if we decided to legalize polygamy, now I have polygamists that live several miles from my home. So polygamy is happening here in Utah. It's just not legal. But if our legislators decide to legalize it, or let's say another state decided to legalize a marriage between blood relatives, or worse yet, what Senator Lee alluded to, and that is um, child marriages, so a marriage between an adult and a child. If these mm -hmm. other states were to legalize it under the full faith and credit clause of the U.S. Constitution, a legalized, so let's say California, for example, legalized child marriage. That would mean if that couple, that adult and child, if they were to move to another state 
and that other state didn't legalize child marriages, but California did, that other state would have to acknowledge that it's a legal marriage. This is frightening because what this means is that pedophiles can run rampant without being faced with criminal charges. And it's absolutely despicable. The other thing that faith leaders are really trying to raise concern and awareness about is this Respect for Marriage Act effectively deputizes interest groups. You know, they can then sue people who want to uphold God's biblical covenant of marriage. And, you know, they can sue religious individuals, organizations, or businesses. And so what this shows us, you know, this assault on marriage is it shows us how far we have strayed as a culture from understanding that marriage is a covenant relationship. You know, when when society discards the word of God as the truth that guides relationships, I really I really believe that the sanctity of marriage becomes lost. And we have to recognize, you know, marriage is the foundation of the family unit. And so we have to protect marriage and family. That's literally the bedrock of civilization. When marriage and family crumble, society crumbles, our civilization crumbles. And God was very clear and he instituted the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. And when he established this covenant, it was for all of humanity. And we we have to recognize, too, that God's laws and decrees supersede any law of the land. And so when legislation opposes what God has established, it really sets our path, our nation on a path of destruction, I believe. And that's that's the path we're headed on. And so we just really have to be aware of currently what is happening in this assault on marriage. The Bible says the earth even moans and groans for the sons and daughters of God, of righteousness to rise up. If what you're hearing right now is not stirring something inside of you to want to rise up and and claim authority over this twisted and wicked enemy who has crept in, he has meandered into all of these rabbit trails of our society and is now taking us so far off track that even the righteous wonder, are the days shortened? Mm. He's still on the throne. Absolutely. Sons and daughters, rise up. You guys who are listening, rise up. Do not be ashamed. Like Romans, I believe it's one sixteen says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Laura, this is the assault <clears throat> that's yeah. taking place. I want to bring us back to what is a biblical covenant of marriage, because I think we have lost sight of what it means. You know, marriage is the most important relationship that we can enter into aside from our relationship with Jesus. And so at the center of a biblical marriage is this covenant before God, and we cannot take that lightly. You know, marriage is this sacred bond between a man and a woman in which the two become one flesh. And that that was established by God at the creation of humanity. And it says in Genesis 2, verse 23 through 24, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, one of the things is I was thinking about, you know, the covenant of marriage, um, the, the ancient Israelites, they had this beautiful practice, um, when it came to their weddings and their marriages. And I want to revisit this for a minute because it really will teach us a lot about the covenant, but also about what it means to be the bride of Christ. So, Let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so in ancient Israel, you know, when a man wanted to marry a woman, he would prepare a covenant, which was like a contract, and he would present it to the woman and to her father. So in this covenant, what the, the man was demonstrating was his will, willingness to provide for the woman. And, you know, what was important was some of the terms of this covenant, the most important was the agreed upon price that the man was willing to pay to marry the woman. Now, I want to um, just give a side note here. It That doesn't mean that they saw women as an object that needed to be bought. Instead, it was really communicating that they recognized the value that women had in their family, because this was an agricultural society. And everyone in the family labored and participated in bringing in the sustenance for the family. And so if you lose a daughter to marriage, then you're losing that opportunity um, and what she would bring forth to the family. And so the bridegroom, he would compensate the family um, for that loss. So if the bride price was agreeable to the woman's father, then the man would pour a glass of wine for the woman. And if she drank the wine it meant that she accepted his proposal for marriage. And then she agreed to enter into that covenant relationship with him. So I want to pause for a minute and fast forward to the last supper. Mm -hmm. And it really helps us understand, you know, when Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. The symbolism here is so beautiful because what Jesus was offering, he was offering the cup of the new covenant, just like the bridegroom offers his bride the cup of the covenant of marriage. Wow. And Jesus disclosed his bride price when he did this. He was willing to pay with his life. The death on the cross was what he was willing to pay for his bride. And so when the disciples then drank the cup, they were accepting the new covenant. And that's so beautiful to me, um, the parallels here. So then back to ancient Israel, after the bride would drink from the cup, what happened is, um, you know, she was then considered betrothed to her bridegroom. And then that's when all the preparations would begin. Well, it's amazing because this betrothal period actually lasted anywhere between one to two years. And during that time, the women would uh, wear a veil and that would signify that she was sealed in a covenant and that she was bought with a price and no longer available to any other men. And, you know, in looking at that, kind of digging in a little bit deeper to this wedding practice, this betrothal period was actually known as the sanctification period because she was set apart for her bridegroom during that time. And they never saw each other during the betrothal period. 
the next time they saw each other was when they drank from the wedding cup together. And so again, this makes so much more sense when we, you know, when we read Matthew 26, 29, when Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So what Jesus is referring to is this wedding cup of the lamb. You know, that's what it talks about in Revelation 19, 7. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And so I think it's just so beautiful, the symbolism here, because, you know, when we accept Jesus, when we drink from that cup of the new covenant and we receive that new covenant, we're betrothed to Jesus. And that betrothal period is known as that sanctification process. You know, while we are alive here on Mm -hmm. earth, we are in a process of sanctifying ourselves, going from glory to glory, you know, allowing the dross to be burned out of us. And then we will see him again when, when the marriage of the lamb and and the bride come together. And so it's just, oh, it's so beautiful. (laughs) Moment of celebration. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, when we think about, again, so back to this, this ancient Jewish wedding practice, I think it just really provides this beautiful understanding of what the marriage covenant is. You know, when we, when we enter into that covenant by saying, I do, um, you know, we, it's not something again, to take lightly. We are entering into a lifelong covenant with our spouse. You know, where we're going to love, encourage, and cherish one another until death do us part. And Ephesians really lays out how we do that. And um, I want to read, this is from Ephesians 5, and it's verses 22 through 33. And it's in the message, and it's just so beautiful. It says, wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. When when I read that and I think, oh my gosh, if, if all our marriages were like that, we literally would have no divorce. But tragically, you know, we have strayed so far from loving and cherishing and honoring in this way. You know, so often I'm guilty of this too, and I'll share stories in just a minute. But so often we think about our own needs, you know, before Mm -hmm. our spouses. 
And oftentimes we, we develop these expectations of what our spouse needs to do. And when those get unmet, what happens is we allow bitterness to take root in our marriage and a root of bitterness will choke out marriage. That you're speaking directly to me and everybody else at this point. I can't tell you how important this this information is for me. I mean, a couple things that I wrote down is, oh my gosh, the culture at large just mind warps all of our generations into um, distorting marriage. It, mm-hmm. The proper de- definition of marriage is not even relevant in today's culture, and that's why. Um, there's so much abuse in, in how we relate to each other. Think of the word relationship. And it's like, I don't even want to call um, what communication with the world being a relationship at this point, because I, I, I want to reject everything that they have to say and hone in on <laughs> learning the word of God mm. in the way it was intended for us to learn. Because with myself, some on a point that you just made, I'll, I'll just share this. You're 100% right. In my mindset, sometimes I'll think, I wish my wife would do this, or I perceive this should be an outcome. And if she doesn't do it, it's almost like the narration of our own mind. It's like disappointing. Mm -hmm. And and I catch myself a lot recently. And as my wife listens to this, she'll be grinning at me smiling because we've been, (laughs) we've been to the test recently um, over our, we celebrated our sixth wedding anniversary uh, two months ago. Awesome. And, uh, taking the time to communicate and slow down and trying to learn to prefer her over myself is literally a battle because I'm combating all of these years of living in the world and not having this tight and narrow understanding of what marriage really means according to God. Now, as I go through it and listen to you, it becomes alive where I'm like, yeah, all those little nudges that were like, no, lay down your plan for the day. No, do not think that you're um, thoughts on how this should look are, are final, like be genuinely and interested and compassionate and slow down about what your wife's responses are, what her, her true needs are, not like where Mm. we're going to dinner, like the, the, the important things of life. And, uh, it's just, yeah, getting God smacked in my truth bone here. (laughs) It's like, Yeah. Yeah. You know, after being married for 30 years, um, gosh, I have so many stories I could tell, but, you know, I wanted to just share some of, um, the ways that, like I said earlier, we've gotten through some of life's struggles. Um, but just to give some of your listeners a little bit of background. Um, so my husband's name is Tom and we have three children. So our oldest is a daughter and she's 24 and she actually just celebrated her first year of marriage and we adore our son-in-law. He is amazing. And then we have, um, our oldest son is 19 and he is working in the trades. He does concrete work and absolutely loves it. And he's living at home and we love that. (laughs) And (laughs) then our youngest son is, almost 15. He's, um, he'll be 15 in January and he is in ninth grade. And so that just, um, gives you a little bit of perspective of the age of our kids. Cause that will tie into some of the stories I tell. Um, but so for my husband, I just, um, I have to say he is absolutely my best friend. Like we, 
we share so much together and I'm grateful because he is an amazing communicator. Um, you know, it, I think oftentimes people say that men have a lot fewer words than women. Well, that's not the case in our marriage. I actually <laughs> talk less than he does. And I'm, I love listening. I'm a good listener. That's part of why I went into psychology. And so I love his stories. Like he, he just tells me so much about his life and what he's processing and the interactions he has each day with people. So I feel like I'm living life right alongside him when, you know, when he goes to work and things like that. So I'm super grateful for that. And he, um, he's also our resident comedian. He's just, he's one of the <laughs> those guys that has just a fun sense of humor and mm loves dad jokes. I would not say that we laugh very hard at his dad jokes. There's a lot more moaning that goes on in our family when he tells dad jokes, but, um, he just, his personality is hilarious. And so we, there are times where we're literally crying in laughter at the dinner table because he pulls out some antic that just (laughs) cracks us up. Mm -hmm. So he's a lot of fun to live with and he's got this exuberant personality. So everyone loves Tom. I mean, I, I've not met a person that doesn't like him. So he's very easy to be married to, which again, I am so grateful for. Um, But like, you know, with any couple over 30 years, we've had definitely ups and downs in our marriage. Um, But I think really what keeps us going strong through our life struggles is the fact that not only do we love each other, but we love Jesus and Jesus is the center of our marriage. And we determined that um, while we were dating, that we weren't going to just have Jesus as like a side note on the, the peripheral of our marriage. We literally wanted to invite him into the center of our marriage. And I'm so thankful we did that even when we were dating, because that has just continued all the way through our marriage. And I think I think back at a pivotal point in my relationship with Tom, um, where <laughs> I'm just going to be super vulnerable and share with people um, my antics because they were quite ridiculous. So when we were in college is when we met, we started dating my senior year of college. And um, this was six months into our marriage or into our dating, not our marriage. And um, I was doing research at the time and I had to drive like 45 minutes outside of campus to do um, run some research experiments. And so he decided to come with me, which I thought was great. And so he came and I don't remember at this point what happened, but something happened during the course of that day and running the experiments. Like he did something that I didn't feel was appropriate. I don't, I can't remember what it was, but I got upset with him. And so on the ride home, it was about, again, 45 minutes away. And I, we got in this argument and my usual antics is I like to be in control. And so if I'm upset with someone, I will give them the silent treatment. And so that's what I did for 45 minutes on the drive home. And we got back to campus and he looked at me and he said, if you want to continue in this relationship, this silent treatment will not work. And I was like, (laughs) go Tom. (laughs) It literally stunned me because, um, you know, I was a bit of a brat. And I was used to being in control and controlling relationships, but I am so grateful he put his foot down because I knew he was the man I was going to marry. And so 
if I was going to continue in relationship with him, I needed to learn how to deal with conflict differently. So (laughs) over the course of years, you know, we got married and even before we got married, he started to teach me how to resolve conflict. And this is something he learned from his parents. And I'm so Mm. grateful because this is an example of a generational blessing that can run in family lines. And his parents taught he and his sister how to do this. And Tom taught me how to do this. And essentially what he taught us is how to forgive one another on a body, soul, and spirit level. And so I want to describe how this played out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in our marriage, um, and even as we were um, starting our family, we waited five years before we had our daughter. Um, But as we, you know, we're, we're having this young family and raising our kids and, you know, progressing in our years of marriage, um, he taught us that, you know, when, when we offend one another, we get in a fight or an argument, we say stupid stuff, or we do mean things, um, how you work through it is, you know, first of all, apologize. And that's what most people will do. You know, they'll say they're sorry. And that's the soul level because our soul is made up of our mind, will, and emotions. So when we say, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, it's, we're expressing remorse and that's the soul level. Now, most people stop there, but what Tom taught us is that's not where you stop. The next step is to ask for forgiveness. And that is the the spirit level. And Colossians 3.13 says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And so he taught us that, you know, we ask for forgiveness. So, um, you know, excuse me, if I, if I did something that was hurtful to Tom, I would say, Tom, will you please forgive me for X, Y, and Z? And then um, what we would do is we would say, please help me understand how I can handle this better or differently next time. And that was so helpful because it taught me how to communicate effectively with him. It taught me that, you know, when I, when I respond in a certain way, what it triggers in him and that's how it, it led to this fight. And so it teaches us how to interact better with one another. When we ask that question, what can I do differently next time that won't end us up in this fight? And so, you know, we generally, when we're in a fight, both of us are saying mean things. And so we'll both ask for forgiveness. And then we end it with some sort of physical embrace. And that's the body level. So whether that's a hug or a kiss, if it's our kids, like a hug or a high five, or if it's between siblings, sometimes a dog pile, you know, whatever exchange that's there on the body level. And what that it it essentially completes the deal. And it shows that even on the level of our body, we are not holding that offense any longer. And so what he taught us to do really was to keep short accounts with one another. And I have to say, now that our kids are older, um, you know, they look at other families, they look at other sibling relationships, and they can see the fruit of what Tom taught us and how to forgive one another and how to resolve conflict. Because our, our kids genuinely enjoy being around each other. Now they're older now. And so it's easier when they're older, but even when they were younger, you know, they would go through the typical sibling stuff where, you know, they're annoying each other and screaming Mm -hmm. or yelling or 
throwing things or, you know, throwing punches, whatever it is. And we would um, bring them into our room or, you know, a, a private, a private area if we weren't at home. And we would say, okay, what is going on? And one of our mantras in our family is use your words. You've got to communicate. And so um, we taught our kids that from a very young age. And so we would ask them, okay, what, what's going on? What started this? Who did what? <laughs> and of course you get all the finger pointing at first and it's still heated, um, you know, a lot of emotions, but then we begin to gradually work them through it and get them to a point where they're ready to acknowledge their end of what they did and begin the forgiveness process and apologize and then ask for forgiveness. And then, you know, usually the, the physical embrace of some sort. And I have to tell you that, you know, there are times certainly where they were not ready to apologize. Like they weren't ready to see their end of the the fight. And so we would just sit in the room with them and sometimes it took like 45 minutes before they were ready to acknowledge Um, But we recognize that, okay, if we sow the time now into these relationships, then we're going to bear the fruit for years to come. And that's what we're seeing. And so I credit Tom, (laughs) because had we, had we resolved conflict the way that, you know, I did before I met Tom, we would be in a world of hurt, lots of silent treatment, lots of glares, lots of bitterness, um, so I really credit Tom for passing on that generational blessing. Um, but we we definitely had our struggles. And so you had mentioned something earlier about expectations. And I have to share this because that is definitely something I did early on in our marriage. So I developed this expectation of how Tom was going to lead our family as the spiritual head of the home. And so... You know, I had a relationship with, we both had relationships with Jesus. And the way that I interacted with Jesus is I, you know, I'm a morning person. I love to spend time with the Lord. So I would get up in the morning and just have my time with the Lord, whether it was journaling or praying or whatever it was. Well, my expectation is that Tom would do the same, that his relationship with Jesus would look the same as mine. Cause you know, of course, if he was going to lead me spiritually, then he had to be like a step ahead of where I was. And my, my behavior was so <laughs> disgusting. Like, as I look back at it now, it literally just makes me disgusted, but that's what I was doing. And so I would, oh, this is so hard to admit, but I would literally ask him, I don't know if it was every day, but it was frequently. I would ask him, so how were your quiet times this morning? Because I knew he didn't spend time with the Lord in the morning like I was doing. And it was my not so subtle way to say, hey, if you're going to lead us as a spiritual head of the home, you've got to spend time with the Lord in the morning. And that's how controlling I was. And really for the first decade of our marriage, I operated in this controlling spirit. It's, it really was a Jezebel spirit. Hmm. And so after several years of him just not meeting my expectations, I was so frustrated and disappointed. And I got to this place with the Lord where I prayed this really dangerous prayer. And I said, Lord, take me through the refiner's fire and burn out the dross within me. 
Wow. And I have to say, if you if you ever pray that, you have to be prepared that the Lord is going to show you your absolute wretchedness. Mm-hmm. Because the Lord literally took me up on that prayer immediately. And I clearly heard him say, you are the reason Tom is being held back. I was holding him back because of the control and because of the expectations. And the Lord began showing me a glimpse. It was like I was able to see it for what it truly was. I was blind to my control, the control issues in my life prior to that. Oh my gosh, when the Lord showed me that, I literally felt nauseous. I felt like I was going to vomit. I just was like, oh my gosh. And I began to repent and Mm -hmm. I knew I needed to make changes. And so I started just by letting go of that expectation that, you know, his relationship with Jesus can look however he wants it to look. Mm -hmm. He's got a totally different personality than mine. Mm -hmm. But I'd have to say that that spirit of control, I didn't get completely set free of until we faced a severe crisis in our family. And that was when our youngest son, when he was 10 months old, he was diagnosed with kidney failure and failure to thrive. And the trauma of that experience, because we nearly lost him on two different occasions and his health issues lasted for years. And the first, you know, the first six months to a year was super intense. It was like one setback after the other. And I literally, I didn't know from day to day if when I woke up in the morning and went to check on him in his crib, if I was going to find him dead or alive. And it absolutely wrecked me. And the Lord began to deal with the control issues in my life through that process because I went through a dark night of the soul for about a good year and a half, almost two years. And I completely tanked because one of the, the issues when he was diagnosed with failure to thrive, he's 10 months old. I'm nursing him still. Um, He actually, I won't go too far into this story because there's a lot of details, but he had started to eat um, baby food when we were at the call DC in 2008. And um, that is a 12 hour prayer and fasting event on the Washington mall. Um, And we were there. I I was youth minister at the time. I took a big group of people and we had we had done a prayer event or just a prayer time on the steps of the Supreme Court the day before the call. And that was the last day my son ate baby food and he got very sick in D.C. And we thought we thought he was dying on the flight home. It was very traumatic. Um, but all that to say, you know, so he, he stopped eating all food. And so I could only nurse him. And I thought I was producing enough breast milk to sustain him. But when he got diagnosed with failure to thrive, it rocked the very core of me because I was failing as a mom to provide his most basic need. And that was to nourish him. And I just like completely fell apart. Sorry, I didn't think I was going to cry. It's still you know, I've been healed through that, but it's still just a very difficult thing. And through the grace of God, as I went through that dark night of the soul, um, 
Tom was an absolute rock. I mean, he was so solid for me and my whole world was turned upside down, but yet, um, Tom was, was consistent and steadfast. And I'm so grateful because, you know, there's times in our marriages, Tom has gone through rough spots in life, um, where it's been really hard for him. And thankfully it, we both don't tank at the same time. We have, Mm. by the grace of God, been able to, you know, endure these difficult times. And I really believe it's because we dedicated our marriage to Jesus. And we said, Jesus, we want you in the center of our marriage. And, um, and because of that, you know, we've been able to be there for one another and to stand strong when the other one is, is just falling apart and to give grace to that process. Like Tom did not set place any expectations on me when I fell apart. He just was present with me in the midst of the the wilderness. And I'm so grateful for that. So I just share that because I want to encourage people that, you know, um, even though we might set these expectations for our spouse and it, it could lead to the destruction of our marriage. God is so good to show us. And when we're willing to have our eyes open and our ears open to what the Holy spirit wants to show us about our own lives and to bring correction to us, you know, Jesus, the father, he disciplines those he loves. Mm -hmm. And I was being disciplined through that process because I had serious control issues. Oh, the last thing is I got set free from that spirit of control in the midst of worship at our church. And I had been meeting with our senior minister for, oh, probably a year straight. And he was he was really excellent at confronting the control issues in my life because other people could see it clearly. I just couldn't. Anyways, um, in the midst of worship, I literally heard this loud snap inside of my body. I was like, what was that? And the Holy Spirit said, spirit of control just broke off you. And I was set free from it. And wow. it moving forward from that point, I changed how it was like I did a different dance. I was no longer no longer doing that dysfunctional dance of controlling my kids and controlling Tom. I began to learn a different dance step. And so I'm just so grateful for the Lord that, you know, he never gives up on us, even though you know, we have such ugly, ugly behaviors and patterns. He's so good to walk us through and to, and to lead us into freedom. That is such a powerful testimony. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Right. And Tom's parents, first of all, like, yes, praise God. Okay. And how they taught him to communicate and, and to pierce through and to reverse the work of the damage that can be done either by our own stupidity or whether it just be through, you know, iniquities or just blindness, ignorance at times, but his parents were intentional. Mm -hmm. And when you were saying that, because I know that not everybody has parents who do that. This is the verse that popped into my heart, Laura. It was when Jesus was with a crowd of people and disciples were trying to get to him and he, they were saying, Hey, your mother and your brothers are here to see you. Mm. And Jesus stops. And he says, my mother and my brothers 
are, are those who hear the will of God and do it. Mm. Now, the reason I bring that up, you have not as a listener gotten good information as to how to handle and how to communicate with your spouse, or even if you're not married and you listen to this episode in preparation for marriage, we can rely on the body of Christ. People with wisdom, the Bible says that there's, there's uh, safety and wise counsel. So find a woman of God if you're a young woman and be humble, get counseled. And it, it's a long, grueling process. So if you didn't have Tom's parents, that model of them teaching us the right way, there's hope in Christ and in those who accept Christ mm-hmm. as we give honor to those who are older than us in the body of Christ. And, and we seek, hey, I need to learn this. I need some help here. And just being honest with each other. The next thing is you said during worship, Laura, mm-hmm. and you, you said you heard that loud snap, our declaration to God is a weapon against the enemy. And I just want to encourage the listeners to go close the door in a secret place and make a new song unto the Lord, make declaration of his majesty and who he is. Because what I've been going through recently, I was sick and I'm finally getting better. And I noticed that after multiple doctor's appointments, my mind was not going to come into agreement and clarity with healing until I acknowledge God first, regardless of whatever the other recommendations were from from a doctor. Like I literally had to take alone time and just say, God, here I am, open heart surgery. And Laura, when you said that that vulnerable prayer about how you had asked God to show you this scary moment during marriage, like God open my eyes and show me what's going on here. I'm being so vulnerable. Am I in error? It's so true that God disciplines those who he loves. And for the listeners, last almost a year ago, almost a year ago to the month actually, is when I had temporarily canceled the podcast. Mm. And most people don't know, but Dr. Laura her sharing wisdom with me and taking the time, the call, to text, to pray with me, almost lost the love of my life in a car accident. Within two weeks of that, our first house fell through. It didn't come to pass and lost half our income because my wife hasn't worked since that accident. Wow. And the listeners did not know any of those details. I did a possible end of show episode last year at this time. It was actually December 7th. And then there's a whole story about how things have been able to continue to go by God's grace. Mm -hmm. So if you guys learn anything here today, if you remember anything, it is by God's grace and us being transparent Mm -hmm. and willing to go to the open heart surgery. I believe it was a Christian rap song from years ago. The master artist will make your mess a masterpiece regardless. I think it was like a Lecrae song from That's good. from years ago. And, <laughs> you know, you talked with me and prayed with me through a very dark season one year ago. Yeah. And I know someone else out there who's going to be listening is going to weep through this episode and they're going to acknowledge, I just need to get real with myself and I need to really call on God's name mm. and let the redeemed of the Lord share their stories. Thank you so much for being here, Laura. Oh, it's a joy. Both got emotional in this episode and here we are (laughs) praising God, sharing our stories. So, yeah.
the show has been growing by God's grace, and I know that new listeners may have not heard your first episode you were on earlier this year, where we covered the Nephilim agenda and spiritual mapping. You wrote a book called The Roots of the Federal Reserve, and I highly recommend the listeners to go get a copy. They have a copy of it in my local bookstore. Um, they Hershey do? Bookstore. Yes. Yes. That's exciting I, to know. Actually, Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's so cool because I invited the lady who owns that Christian bookstore to come on for like a 15 minute, 20 minute ease of edification episode talking about, you know, the highlights of and the struggles and rewards of owning a Christian bookstore. So I really hope she agrees and, and awesome. decides to come on. Laura, tell the people where they can find you. Yeah, so the best place to find me is on my website, which is no longer enslaved.com. And then you can reach out to me. Um, I love getting emails from people. I try my best to respond to everyone. And um, my book is available on my website. You'll find articles. I write monthly articles um, that are available if you subscribe. You'll get those once a month. Um, there's no cost to subscribing. It's just signing up your email. And then um, all my podcasts and videos that I've done over the years are on my website. I also have a YouTube and Rumble channel called No Longer Enslaved. And I've done several different episodes, but I've done two series. The first series was a 10-part series called The Impact of the Nephilim Agenda Today. And then the second series I just finished is called Transformation Through Spiritual Mapping. So those are both available on my YouTube and Rumble channel. And then I'm also on Telegram and Instagram as Laura Sanger 444 Hertz. And so you can find me there. I'm also on LinkedIn. Two are better than anyone because they have a good reward for their labor. Ecclesiastes 4.9. Laura, I call you a friend. Yes. <laughs> a mentor at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Share this episode with your pastor. You guys, share it with your spouse, most importantly. Pray about everything you heard. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling as we trust in the Christ, the price he's paid, and he has good plans for our lives if we trust in him. Coming to you from Southeastern Pennsylvania. God bless America. Goodbye.